There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A truce is close. Multiple sources, including Hamas and the U.S. State Department, have indicated that an agreement to release hostages is now imminent. Now, very close, very close. Uh, we could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. Filthy Rich, a new survey reveals that Ireland's richest 10% are responsible for 27% of the country's carbon emissions. We ask, should there be a climate tax for the wealthy? And is it game over for Stephen Kenny? We look back at the career of the Irish gaffer and ask, who may come off the bench to replace him now? been a day rife with speculation that a deal to release a portion of the hostages abducted by Hamas on October 7th could be on the horizon. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been meeting with his cabinet tonight to vote on the terms of a deal. Well, joining me in studio now to discuss this further is Green Party TD Nasser Hurrican, People Before Profit Solidarity TD Mick Barry and Sunday Independent reporter Mark Tai. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first on this, Mark, um, obviously there was a number of parties negotiating this release of hostages. It's now at the point that it's come to the Israeli cabinet table and that will des- decide how all of this proceeds. Yeah, so the uh, Qataris have been key in this, in, in the middle of the negotiation between Hamas representatives in Qatar and, and the Israelis and the Americans as well. Um, so what we're hearing tonight is that, and obviously Israel's been on, under a lot of pressure internally, there's 240 hostages being taken by Hamas in the October 7th attack. Um, so huge pressure internally to get those hostages back. So what we're hearing is that there will be a pause in fighting of maybe up to four days, maybe longer, and there will be a deal done where some 50 Israeli hostages, mainly the women and children, including, we'd all hope, Emily Han, the, the, like she's only nine years old, the, mm-hmm. the Irish-Israeli girl, will be among those, hopefully we'll see released, that they'll be released, and, and up to 150 Palestinians who've been, uh, who are in jails, who are captured by the Israelis. These will be all uh, women, teenagers, uh, children as well, who've been captured in, in the fighting in the last few days, or, or even captured before the attacks on October 7th. And... There's a lot of moving parts to it, whether the Israelis will let fuel into Gaza. Um, that's one of the requests that Hamas have said they want to, for humanitarian reasons. So uh, this is all going for the war cabinet tonight. And Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be recommending that this deal be agreed by, by his, his war coalition that, that's formed in, in the aftermath of, of those October 7th attacks. 
of course, uh, you know, there, there, there's likely to be some op opposition to terms of this deal around that cabinet table as well with members of this coalition party, some of whom would be even further right than Benjamin Netanyahu on this one. Yeah, there's a lot of extremists, right wingers um, in Israel and, and even a part of the government who, you know, believe, you know, the Israelis shouldn't stop until they've captured all of Gaza. Um, and, you know, at the moment, the Israeli force occupied the northern part of Gaza. So... The, the, because of the anger, I suppose, uh, generated from the October 7th attacks, there, there, there is opposition to a pause, but I think there's a growing belief that they, they need to get those uh, hostages home. And as you say, a lot of internal pressure by the hostage families themselves who just want to see their loved ones home and are happy for a pause in fighting and a ceasefire to achieve that. Um, Mick, when we look at this, does it show that there's a part for diplomacy here, even in the dark days, um, that, that this can bring about some good and some respite in this war? Yeah, well, let's just have a look at the idea of a pause. I mean, if I was to pause my breathing for 15 seconds, it would mean that in 15 seconds' time, I'd start breathing again. And what a four- or a five-day humanitarian pause mm -hmm. means is that in four or five days' time, the genocide, uh, the bombardment, uh, the killing on a mass scale, including of, of children and babies, will restart. So what's needed here is not a humanitarian pause. It's a complete and total ceasefire. And then to address the root cause of the cycle of violence that we see here, which is rooted clearly in uh, an Israeli occupation, which is brutal mm. and which is racist. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu has said there will be... I mean, he hasn't... We, we don't know the terms of this this four-day, four- or five-day truce, but that the war will continue. This is not... Uh, this is a time-limited ceasefire. You couldn't even call it that. No, I don't think you, you can, and I completely agree that what we need is a full ceasefire. I, I think if you look at what the humanitarian crisis on the ground is there, we now have hospitals in the region that don't function. We have a huge amount of, of deaths, not just of the civilian population, but also those aid workers... Um, who were in the area to help and, and obviously of, of press as well. So I think what we should be looking at is, is what the future is after this. I welcome the five-day pause, but what is the future afterwards? Mm -hmm. Are they expecting during this pause for more people to leave the region? In which case, you know, we would be questioning what is Israel's intent here? Are they trying to move people out of the region? And then I do think that, you know, possibly um, Israel's, al Israel's allies like the US and the UK might be looking at the region in general in a wider way and looking at some of the destabilisation that's starting to happen and questioning whether they can really hold out that level of support that they have been doing. Uh, you would wonder how the release of hostages will play into how, how this war proceeds now because a lot of the public sentiment around in Israel was to see the release of their loved ones. It will be on a phased basis. We're hearing 10 to, or 12 or 13 Israeli hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, including dual nationals, may be released by Thursday, up to 50 then women and children in total being released, but that this way may in some way change how this war progresses. It's very hard to know that. I have to say, you know, it's questionable how much of a focus the Israeli government has put on those hostages up to now. They were quite happy to put those hostages in, in jeopardy and continue bombing um, while they knew where generally people were. And so you, you'd have to question certainly 
whether it will affect the Israeli government, I, I do think it has had an impact within the territory itself, insofar as those families putting pressure um, politically um, to, to bring their, their loved ones home. Um, and no word as yet, we haven't heard anything yet about uh, the fate of Emily Hand and whether she may be among uh, those released, Mark, but the hope being that if it's women and children and dual citizens, that she would be there. Yeah, yeah, obviously her father, Tom, has, you know, been very public about, you know, originally believing she was dead and then, you know, the uh, shock, I suppose, to find that she's still alive. Michal Martin, we know, was in the region last week pressing her case with everyone and even today I think was making calls with the Qataris so you know the hope would be that um, she's alive and safe and will be returned safe. Okay um, I'd like to uh, bring in um, a story we were just referring there to healthcare facilities and doctors impacted in the region by this war. Medicine Sans Frontier has revealed that three doctors including two of its own were killed in a strike on the Al-Auda hospital in northern Gaza but we're joined now by Donal O'Gorman spokesperson for Medicine Sans Frontier Ireland to comment on this. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme um, tonight Donal and my sympathies on the loss of colleagues in the region. What do we know about the doctors where they worked and and exactly uh, how this attack came about today. Thanks for that, Claire. Um, I, I want to start by just saying that we are outraged um, after the events of today. We condemn in the strongest possible uh, terms uh, the killing of two MSF doctors at Al Outdoor Hospital today, uh, Dr. Mahmoud Abu Nujaila and Dr. Ahmed Al uh, Sahar. Um, both worked in Al Outdoor. Uh, they've been working extremely hard around the clock for the last month or so. Um, with extremely limited resources, um, doing their best to save lives, uh, completely dedicated to their work. Uh, and now after a strike on Al-Audwa Hospital, uh, which hit the third and fourth floors, um, they're no longer with us. Um, so we reiterate our, our condemnation of this attack um, on a hospital. Um, and, and we also reiterate our, our, our calls for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, we need there to be a ceasefire um, to stop the killing, to stop the bloodshed, to stop so many people being injured so that, um, so that we, we can respond to the already overwhelming medical need that exists. Heard from the WHO that the health system is entirely broken down there. In the case of Al Auda Hospital, uh, is it is it shutting down now? Is th is that what's happening? Are people leaving there in their droves because it's not safe to operate anymore? Yeah, Al Auda is one of the last remaining functional hospitals in in northern Gaza. Um, more than two hundred patients are still there, still in Al Auda, and they're unable to receive the level of care that they need. Uh, these patients urgently need uh, to be evacuated. They need to get to other hospitals uh, that are still functioning. Um, although all our hospitals in Gaza have been working beyond their capacity since October um, due to ongoing shortages, attacks and an extremely high caseload, uh, these 200 patients do need to be evacuated as soon as possible uh, from al after this um, horrendous attack, um, which led to the death of our two colleagues there today. And tell me, where will they go? Um, well, they need to get to other hospitals. They need to get to other hospitals that are maybe even barely functioning there, um, or, or even better, to the south. Uh, to, 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 um, to the south. Um, that's not to say that the south is is any way safer. There is no safe place in Gaza right now. Uh, our medical team of fifteen that managed to cross the Rafah crossing last week uh, to join some three hundred Palestinian colleagues, many of whom 
are still working in unimaginable circumstances. Um, um, down in the south near Khan Yunus, um, the medical team received 122 patients um, on, on Saturday following an airstrike about one kilometer away from Nasser Hospital where they're working. Um, uh, a lot of these casualties arrived to the facility uh, deceased, uh, but many arrived with extremely severe injuries, including many women and children. Um, so the MSF team in the south at Khan Yunus are also working around the clock um, with dwindling supplies. Um, we mentioned the, the potential for a humanitarian pause earlier. Um, a pause is not enough. Uh, we can't really do much in four or five days. Uh, we reiterate our call for an immediate ceasefire um, so that we have some sort of a chance to get more medical supplies in, to get more medical teams in, um, and to try and rapidly scale up and try and meet the overwhelming uh, medical needs after more than four weeks of relentless bombardment. Donal, as I say, my sympathies uh, with MSF on the loss of medical staff there in Gaza at this very difficult time and challenging time for anyone working um, to help casualties in the region, of which there are many. Um, Mick, to come to you on, on what uh, your party wants to see happen now, you, you want the government to go further, to be tougher in their approach. You've a dull motion that you're tabling this week, um, you know, pushing for a tougher response and further sanctions. Yes. sanctions. Sure. Uh, so what we have seen from the Irish government so far um, has been wards. Uh, it's true that the wards have been a bit stronger than most European governments, but if you're seeing a genocide unfold before your eyes, you need to go beyond wards. Uh, last week, we supported the proposal that there be an expulsion of the Israeli ambassador. Mm -hmm. We think that if that had happened in Ireland, that there would have been governments across Europe under huge pressure to uh, do that. Uh, you can't put the same motion two weeks in a row. So the, the issues that we're putting on the table for debate tomorrow is the idea that uh, trade between Ireland and Israel, it should not be business as usual and the government should step in and intervene there. And also we're raising the issue of what's happening at Shannon Airport, all right? Uh, we know that three million US troops have gone through Shannon Airport since 2002. Uh, and uh, we know that in other countries, in Belgium and Catalonia, for example, uh, that transport workers mm -hmm. have uh, refused to handle planes and, and boats in the ports, uh, which are carrying arms to Israel. And we'd like to know, are, is, there military, is there military aircraft going through Shannon, which is, carry, which is carrying arms at the moment? And where are those arms ending up? And we, we don't know that, but that's the question that you're asking and you're, you're posing as part of this debate. We have heard the Taoiseach saying uh, that your motion is not balanced and does not mention Hamas. You yeah, won't well, be supporting it on those grounds. Well, look, I'm, I'm clear the, the actions of Hamas on October the 7th, I'm totally opposed to them, the targeting of innocent uh, civilians uh, uh, in reality. Uh, but, you know, we have 14,000 Palestinians killed in the last six weeks, we have five and a half thousand children. Uh, the idea that the government uh, wouldn't vote for a motion because there isn't a mention of Hamas in it, I think they're is it really worth a mention? Is it worth a mention in order to, you know, bring this, bring this to I think, a, a I think dull if, motion I think and if, to have that discussion? I think if there was a mention in the, art, in, in the, the motion, they would still oppose it because I think their real issue is the idea that it shouldn't be business as usual in terms yeah. of trade. And I think their other real issue is the idea of inspections. 
at uh, uh, Shannon Airport. Very, very briefly on that, I would say, if the state doesn't intervene in Shannon Airport, it would be very good if the trade unions and the workers were to take action there themselves. OK, we're hearing why the government is saying they wouldn't support this. Um, in the Taoiseach's view, it's not balanced. It does not mention Hamas or the October 7th attacks. NASA, is, is the mention of Hamas, of that atrocity, is that important to you? Because you've, you've sided with the opposition on the previous vote around expelling the Israeli ambassador and, and sanctions on Israel. I think the Taoiseach and the Tanisha should consider amending this motion to include a mention of Hamas. That, that is something that they would be able to do. I do think that it's important to do that. And I don't think it's an oversight. I don't think it's something that we forgot from the text or, or, or that PVP and Solidarity forgot from the text. I, I think it's a choice not to include a mention of Hamas. And, and I have to say, I, I think it's a questionable choice. I did support um, the opposition motion last week because... I think actually Ireland is a very important part to play here. And for the most part, it's very noticeable that the doll mostly agrees. We all agree that we do advocate for Palestine. We do advocate for a ceasefire. And, and there's a huge amount of agree agreement to build on there. But I, I have to say, I, I don't think it's an oversight that there's no mention of Okay. Us. So what way will you vote? Uh, well, I want to see the government's amendment. I haven't had a chance to read that yet. Um, and so I'm going to hold my fire until I see what the amendment is. Not an oversight, but a conscious choice that you made in that one, Mick. I'm very clear on it. The, what happened on October the 17th, I'm totally opposed to it. But now, but, why not put it on the record of the doll then? Well, put an amendment down yourself in, in relation to it. The point that I'm making is that the government opposition, the real problem that they have mm. is the idea of inspections at Shannon and saying it ain't business as usual in terms of trade. Actually, on that we agree, is that the government, and certainly I had this conversation during the negotiations for the programme for government, the, the government currently consider those flights as, as operating like commercial flights. Um, and it's a kind of a hear no, hear no evil, see no evil situation and we don't actually inspect those planes. Mm -hmm. So we say that we, we're, we're not breaching any you know, constitutional issues, but we say that because we don't know. Um, we don't know because we don't want to know, uh, Mark. Is, is that maybe what's happening here with regards planes landing at Shannon Airport, that those checks aren't taking place, that there, there could be more push yeah, well, I suppose if, this one. If, if there's evidence that um, you know arms are being shipped in, in breach of international law or Irish law, like the government will be forced to take action. I, I don't I haven't seen any evidence that is the case. Just on the motion to expel the ambassador last week, um, you know, I, I know from talking to Jewish people, like the message that sent out in Ireland was, you know, it felt that they were being targeted. You know, people who would support Israel. Um, they felt it was unfair. Like if, if Michal Martin was going out, if Michal Martin was going out there, and we'd actually, you know, did expel the ambassador, what hope would he have had being listened to by the Israelis? You know, so it, it would have been a huge diplomatic uh, incident that would have been created by if 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 that motion had been passed and it had actually been carried out. If we um, expel, if we had expelled the Israeli ambassador, a point there that we've looked at the power of diplomacy. Perhaps this week we had Michal. Martin's uh, visit to the Middle East and then this push for Emily Hand being among the hostages and for this hostage release, in fact. We even had the Taoiseach there meeting with, I think, Arab representatives tonight on this, that those channels are important to remain open. Uh, can you see that side of the argument, McBarry? Yes, I can see that side of the argument. But I think on balance, when you're looking at a genocide, you've got tough choices and decisions to make. And two points very briefly. The, the, the first one would be, if the ambassador had been expelled last week, every protest in every country in Europe would have been pre putting pressure on their own government 
to say follow the example of Ireland. And that would have put some real pressure mm. on uh, Israel. The other thing is, just have to reply in relation to the point that Mark uh, raised there, the, the protest movement in this country, which has brought probably hundreds of thousands of people out onto the streets at this stage, is pro the Palestinian people, anti the, the actions of the Israeli state. It is not in any sense anti-Semitic. It is anti-racist and for solidarity. And there's no place for anti-Semitism. All right. OK, there we're going to leave that for now. NASA, Mick and Mark are staying on with me. Lots more to come after this break, so do stay with us. Welcome back. A new report by Oxfam has revealed that the richest 10% in Irish society are responsible for 27% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. This comes as a recent UN study detailed how temperatures are on track to increase by nearly 3 degrees Celsius this century. This cataclysmic rise would put the planet past several points of no return, including the drying out of the rainforest. Well, NASA Harrigan, Mick Barry and Mark Ty have stayed with me to discuss this. We're joined on the panel by editor of Climate at the Sunday Times, Ireland, Joe Linhan. You're welcome along to the programme, Joe. This Oxfam report, uh, the richest 10%, they're responsible for quite a percentage of our, our greenhouse gas emissions, basically saying we you know, uh, that the rich are most responsible and the poor are paying the price on this. Yeah, exactly. It's something that I think we've known all along. You know, the people less res least responsible for the worst impacts of climate change are experiencing the worst impacts and those at the top of the chain are, are most responsible. But I don't think we really knew how severe it was. And I think the Oxfam numbers, putting it in black and white and, you know, equating, you know, 10% of, of the richest people being responsible for most of the emissions is just absolutely shocking and horrifying. And I think we need to, need to seriously start looking at taxing very, very rich on, on the impact they're having. And there needs to be consequences. I mean, what we're looking at is really, really serious impacts, not just for the world's poorest, but for all of us in society. And then you have this tiny privileged group who are just living as if there's no climate crisis. So we need to start taxing them, I think. OK, when you're talking about the very, very rich, are you talking about corporations? Are you talking about individuals with high salaries? Absolutely both. I mean, corporations have a huge role to play. You know, there's so many corporations who are making billions who are still guzzling fossil fuels. It's the same with the billionaires in the world. You know, we really need to start looking at equity and looking at the world and thinking, are we going to live in a world where these people can continue to just use resources if there's nothing happening while everyone else is suffer, suffering or do we actually take mm. action? Now, so, uh, the divide evident in Ireland, according to this report, the wealthiest 500,000 individuals emitting almost the same amount of carbon as two and a half million people uh, on the lowest income. So in trying to meet climate targets in this country, are we putting everyone on a par to the detriment of those who simply, you know, don't have the money to change things and aren't the ones causing the problem? I think it's about calibrating the system to protect the most vulnerable and to to really focus it on, on the polluter pays principle. So there's a number of ways you can do that. One is that to realise that the reason that the wealthiest produce the most carbon is because they are heating larger houses, they might have two or three cars, they might be going on two or three holidays a year. So by you know, utilising consumption taxes, you are going to address some of that. The other version of it is to make okay, a direct but we have correlation. across the board carbon tax, say. Now, yes, but everyone then, will pay that. Yes, and exactly. So then the carbon tax that we have at the moment is ring-fenced to then do things like retrofit council homes, for example, so that into the future, people who are in more vulnerable households 
don't actually have the same um, kind of vulnerability to those taxes that other people who are higher emitters do. But the other part of that is to make a very clear um, connection between not just carbon emissions and consumption, which is absolutely a thing, but also simply just wealth. Like we need a, a proper and very well worked out wealth tax because wealth in and of itself is a carbon creator because, you know, wealth is often shares and stocks. But a, a, as you mentioned, you know, okay. it is corporations as well. So it is actually profit and a profit driven system that is adding to the So you're saying crisis. yes to a wealth tax? Absolutely. I think, though, that what we need to be doing is looking at a global wealth tax. There was a very brilliant report in October from because the Because then EU it's kind of hands off. It's not our, it's not our no, fault no, because that we're, 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 we're taxing the wealthy in this country. If you're very, very wealthy, you are insulated from the worst impacts of climate, but you're also very mobile. And just like the corporation tax, which mm. focused on corporations, we have to look at very wealthy individuals as being very mobile. And therefore, a wealth tax, which I believe would bring in something in the region of 250 billion every well, year, that, would be okay. very, very you're effective. You're saying the wealthy are very mobile. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. But like there are TDs, there are government ministers that would, 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 be, would be in the wealthy, would be in that percentage according to Oxfam. They've listed out senators in Australia and, you know, senators in the US and all of that. And they've said Irish government ministers. They fall into that bracket. Like, are they mobile? Are they going anywhere? Or should they just pay more taxes at home? Well, if, if we're talking about ta wealth taxes, we had a commission on tax and welfare in the last 18 months. Certainly, I actually wrote to them during that process and asked them to look at wealth taxes. And what that commission found is that most wealth in Ireland is held in property. And if we were serious about taxing wealth in Ireland, we would look at property taxes. And I know that that isn't always very popular from either the left or the right of the political spectrum. Okay. And someone would say, well, we already have, we all already have property taxes in place. But just to bring you in on this, Mick, um, clearly, like, you'd advocate such a move to tax the elite. It's probably, uh, it would be a, a no brainer I'd be surprised if I heard um, anything else. But how much do you propose they pay? Propose that they pay a lot. But I, I, and I may I, include you in that. You're I, a TD. You well, know, you're on a lot of money. So, I mean, when I say they, there, there are plenty of people, there are 500,000 people in this country that perhaps fall into that bracket, according to Oxfam, at least. Yeah, I, I think wealth taxes are a big part of this. But actually, what the Oxfam report shows that you need to go further than wealth taxes. Because what did the report indicate? It said that the wealthiest 1% on the planet account for more carbon emissions than two-thirds of the world's population. That is an incredible statistic. And it raises the question, 
as to whether there is a future for the human race if you allow the world to be dominated by 150 or 200 large corporations responsible for more than 70% of carbon emissions, and whether you allow a billionaire class Mm -hmm. and a super wealthy elite within a capitalist society. I'm quite serious about putting on the table that part of the debate has to be now, do we need to end capitalism on an international basis? One step at a time, though. (laughs) These are issues that will be posed in the next... 10, 15 or 20 years if, if, if half of what is in that Oxfam report is to All be right. believed. OK, end capitalism, um, Mick says. Um, but, That's you know, a solution uh, for everything, though, isn't it? <laughs> but climate, climate is a, it, climate's a hot potato, isn't it? Politically, it's a very hot potato, Mark. Um, even, you know, when NASA's talking about it, and rightly talking about it on a global scale, that we see the top 1% being the big polluters. But when it comes back home, we have an issue with carbon taxes. There's an idea that why are we all being punished? It's a hard sell. How would a wealth tax go down? Yeah, that's, I suppose it, it reinforces this issue that we've seen from the wealthy that it's, you know, um, do what I say, not what I do. You know, we, we're, we're accustomed to seeing, um, you know, our, the elite flying off to Davos, the ski resort in Switzerland to, to tell us how to live our lives and, you know, building up massive emissions. Uh, you know, even if, I think it, it's a hard sell for governments in, in educating the public or bringing the public with them to change lifestyle, your, your lifestyle and, you know, where, how you're, if you're going to spend money on retrofitting your house. Like we saw last week, Orti had an attempt at this programme with like a 27 years in the future, Ireland 2050, fronted by Mark Little. And it, 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 wasn't, uh, it wasn't the best programme, but it, it had that kind of lecturing attitude, you know, where we're, you know, oh, look at all the dangers here. We're all going to be eating grubs and uh, stuff for your school meals. We're going to have climate refugees and Spike Island policed by drones. And it was kind of a bit... You know, okay, look, okay. There's, a, there's a serious so subject. You're saying we, we we don't want to, we we don't want to know. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, just, if we're looking at, at the future about what actually climate experts and scientists are maybe predicting about what we're going to see down the line. Well, well people aren't you know, comfortable in seeing it. Large parts of Dublin are going to be underwater in in 20 to 40 years mm. if if we're, if we're going to see the sea rise with scientists are predicting it, and that is that, that's what the science is pointing to. So we we it is, we are in a climate emergency, but. How we bring people with us that we saw the the yellow. Is that vest one quote. way of bringing people with us? So you say, look, if you're earning a lot of money, you've, you've got money, you've got your gas guzzlers, you're flying away four holidays a year. You know what? You're going to pay more tax. Well, we and- see Dublin is blighted with uh, the gas guzzlers. We've more SUVs, I think, than any other city in Europe. Um, you know, so we, we have a major problem in Ireland. You know that uh, you know big polluters are you know continuing to, to pollute and, and buy and invest in things, cause more pollution and. Is it, we have the Greens in government, but we, we aren't really seeing the, the, the carrot and stick approach really on, on a lot of these things that we need to see. Um, yeah, on the point, and I'll come to the carbon emissions and, and where we are at with all of this. Um, but I, I just want to get back to what we're saying about individuals and corporate interests. Like, are corporate interests um, getting the message? And what sort of hit do they take for their business and being big polluters, the data centres? That's another thing that people take a lot of issue with. We're all being told to cut down, to be efficient, uh, to watch the meter. And, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, and they just then see big data centres and all, you know, what's being what's being used there and, 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 and emissions there. Well, the thing is, with everything, like, I, the, those big companies also have the power to do good and those high-wealth individuals also have the power to do good because we can see from the report if those individuals and those companies make the right changes, the impact that they'll have is enormous. So the argument is there for people to do the right thing and for companies to do the right thing. And the great thing is that now there's legislation coming down the tracks from the EU that will start to regulate and really uh, target and hit these companies where 
where it hurts if they're not legally complying and doing what they need to do. So I think we're going to see that start to happen and that is going to make a big um, impact, I think. But we, it, you can talk about consumers, you know, making their changes all you want, but really that, that report shows we need the heavy hitters doing the heavy lifting, end of. Um, Mick, I suppose arguably COP28, they'd say, look, that's what uh, that's about, that they're going to be gathering, funny enough, in the UAE, um, an oil producing nation. Uh, the president uh, of COP, I think, uh, presiding over an oil company. So, I mean, th there's issues there, there in, in itself, perhaps. But um, with that, is this not the opportunity when with the UN saying, look, we are at this point that whatever limits we set for global warming, well, we are really at the end of the road now. OK, well, the, the, I think it was at the last COP that the climate campaigner, Greta Thunberg, uh, used the expression, blah, 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 when she was talking about the comments of the political establishment. And the Oxfam report um, shows the links between the political establishment and the fossil fuel industry. They say that one in four members of the US Congress own shares in fossil fuel companies. So yes, now is an opportunity to change things, but the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and it has to be with the understanding that the problem here is that political establishment and those corporate interests who go for profit over the environment every time. That is where the direction of the climate movement needs to go now. Uh, I mean, it's, it's true to say that it's often been dubbed a talking shop and there's lots of, you know, precious words said about saving the planet, but it comes down to bottom lines and the places that are producing money and making money and burning fossil fuels and it's doing great for their economy. They're going to continue to do that, aren't they, NASA? I mean, Ireland is one of those countries because we are one of, per head of population, one of the largest emitters of carbon in the world. Um, I do think some good things will come up. So when we hear about the Chinas and the Indias and the coal plants and all of that, we are up there per, per in head. In the Chinas and in Indias, per, there are millions and millions and millions of people who live below the poverty line and live very low carbon lifestyles, and often unfortunately for them. Um, and Ireland per head of population is a very high emitter. So all of us, you know, we're a very car dependent nation. We haven't um, in, uh, we haven't invested in public transport the way we, we should have or, or renewable energy the way Nasa, we should have in the past. speaking as, as, as if you're not in a government party again. No, what but, I'm but, going to like, say is this, what I'm going to say is this, is that first of all, I, I just want to mention the fact that the, the loss and damage fund is going to be agreed at COP28, which is about, we're talking about taxing into the future, but that will be around wealthier nations paying for the damage that they did to developing countries in the past. And that's incredibly important and helping them into the future. I, I, what I will say is this, is my, my key worry for the, for the Irish situation is that this is as good as it's going to get. We're a minority party in government. And I think, you know, Deputy Barry doesn't necessarily like the programme for government, but I think we're all aware that every single party in the Dáil right now that is forward on climate is a minority party. And possibly... This is as good as it gets in terms of, of government. And the three larger parties have to be brought to the climate table, kicking and screaming. So any progress is down to the Greens? No, well, <laughs> I didn't really mean to make that point. I'm, what I mean I'm, to say I'm is I'm worried that, about the future. Well, I'm asking you that because we have reported today that the carbon budget target is now impossible. We'll only have a marginal decrease in 2023. That's according to Paul Dean uh, from UCC, who was speaking to the Business Post, saying that most sectors are not going to reduce emissions by nearly enough. And in transport, emissions could actually rise. 
I think if you're looking at individual sectors, the news is not good. And I think that that but is very worrying. Is well, a policy failure? I, I Look, I think you can't fix all of the problems in three or four years in government, but I, I am very worried for into the future because we now have an opposition party likely to go into government that based on their pre-budget submission is, is, is kind of courting the anti-climate okay. vote. Um, and you're speaking about Sinn, Sinn Féin there who say that they have included more measures within even the, 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 the last budget mm -hmm. around climate. But Mark, on all of this, um, we see that we're actually not, and we've set these sort of lofty targets. They're really ambitious. We're not going to, we're not going to make, we're not going to get there. And then it's managing the overshoot of these targets, isn't it, politically? Yeah, like things like uh, getting the number of electric cars or getting, you know, diesel and petrol cars off the road. They're the unrealistic targets have been set there, which, you know, that's a huge problem when people see, well, that's not going to happen. You know, there's no real attempt to make them. Like there has been a huge uptake in sale of electric cars in the last year, but like the, what the government target is, is never going to be hit. So I think we need a bit of realism, I suppose, and, and real government support like, to, to, to meet proper you know, environmental targets. All right, there we will have to leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Joe Linehan for joining us on the panel. Coming up after the break, we reflect on the end of the Kenny era at Ireland and we look to who is next. Welcome back to the one-all draw against New Zealand tonight. Mark the end of the Stephen Kenny era as manager for Ireland. Well, here's what he had to say after tonight's game. If it is my last game, you know, as manager, you know, uh, so be it. It's been a privilege to manage um, this group of players, tremendous group of players, really. Uh, huge respect for every single one of them. You know, uh, it's the biggest privilege you can have as to manage your, your country. Um, I'm lucky enough, fortunate enough to have got that opportunity and um, I think uh, had tremendous support from the Irish public. You know, we've had absolutely record crowds um, over the last couple of years. It's been amazing away support, terrific. And uh, just up and down the country, just nothing but encouragement and I'm very appreciative of the support I've had from, from the Irish public. Yes, Stephen Kenny's voice breaking a little there as he gave um, that reaction to the result of the match. Um, some independent reporter and author of Champagne Football, Mark Ty, has stayed on with me. He's joined by former Republic of Ireland player and pundit Keith Tracy and sports journalist Daniel Hussey. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, the reaction to uh, that result tonight, I mean, a meaningless friendly against New Zealand, a one-all draw. Is this Stephen Kenny's swan song? It is, yeah. I think the writing was on the wall before these two games, perhaps up until maybe the June game this year. But uh, it's just been a frustrating last 12, 18 months for Stephen Kenny. I mean, if you go back to the Scotland game when we beat Scotland 3-1 in the Nations League, since then I think we've won three out of the 11 competitive games we've had. Scotland have won eight of their 11 competitive games. So it's almost like watching two countries go completely different directions. Um, he's been tad unlucky initially with injuries, COVID and stuff like that. But I think over the last... 12, 18 months, it's sort of caught up with him the, the job. And I think 
there's definitely managers out there that can potentially get more out of the players. Mm. But I would also caution that our players aren't exactly world beaters in terms of having a million Premier League stars to choose from. So there's, it's a frustrating night tonight, particularly given there was only 25,000 there as well. Yeah, very small crowd. You both, in fact, came from the match tonight. What was the atmosphere there like? It was always said about Stephen Kenny, he's the backing of the players. He has the backing of the fans. Yeah, it was flat. It's not like there was millions of boos at full time, but there was just a, a flatness and inevitability about the game. To be honest, it actually it was a game that summed up the Stephen Kenny reign where you're playing a team probably inferior to you. We score the first goal, go one nil up. I'm sort of half thinking we're playing okay-ish. And then a, a team like of New Zealand standards somehow managed to figure us out and get the equaliser. And to be honest, if there was a better team out there tonight, it probably was New Zealand. So look, great for just one positive Andy Moore and came on made his debut from the under 21 so it's brilliant to see those young players come through and I would say that Stephen Kenny has given so many Irish players mm. their caps over 20 players in competitive internationals that uh, I think ultimately that could be his legacy down the line if we get a, another manager that can continue bringing those young players through. So. Bringing on the players but not the success to go with it I mean Mark when you look at this he was confirmed as manager uh, five years ago but it was an arrangement where he had to wait while on the same day, Mick McCarthy was announced that he was going to run the 2020 Euro uh, campaign. Was that a bad, a shaky start for Stephen? And was it always from, you know, that way in that it was going to be quite like uh, uncomfortable and maybe it, it, it just paved the way for maybe what was to come in terms of inspiring confidence in the boss? Yeah, well, I think that the first thing they wanted to do was obviously they wanted to give Mick the job in the interim and they wanted Stephen to come in, get his, get in at the under-21s level, get to know the younger players because these younger players are going to be coming into the senior team. So that has worked. He's brought an awful lot of lads mm. through. He will know an awful lot of lads from the under-21s squad, but being a good under-21s player doesn't translate to being a senior player. I've been an under-21s player and the lads that have been around me in, in <clears throat> that we grew up together with, very few of them go on to make senior caps. So you might get one or two, but going on to be a mainstay, a centurion, it doesn't really happen. So there is a big, big jump there. The tactics we play for me are too... They're, they're too they're too rigid, you know, trying to play this sexy football, trying to play between the lines. When you have novices at this level, you have to give them every chance of being able to play at this level. And we've tried to run before we can walk in international football. And Stephen, Stephen's first, first interview, he said, was we're not going to play this British style of football. And I think that was a stick that people started to beat him with towards the end, that we're trying to play this way of football, the sexy, progressive, playing through the lines. We don't have the midfield players to do it. And I've been banging this drum for years and years that we can't do it. We can win games of football in the meantime. It's not going to be particularly pretty on the eye. But, you know, nobody wants dead rubbers like we had last week against Holland. Uh, I mean, was Stephen Kenny's problem really that he was sort of too ambitious in bringing on all the young players and a lot of them at the same time? Did he have a choice in the matter? Like, he had to bring on fresh blood. Like, we're talking about that potentially being his legacy. It might, there may be more fruit to bear for the successor. Um, but, I mean, was he sort of you know, was he stuck with what he had and then trying to make the most of, of, of fresh players and give them a run out and see where they could go? I think it's true that, um, you know, we're probably missing a generation or two of, of, of players because of the lack of structures that are there in Irish football. You know, we know the FAI has been bankrupt, you know, been bailed out as recently as 2020 after John Delaney era. There was no proper investment in League of Ireland structures, academy structures. So, and then... You know, even even with the new FEI leadership that's come in, we've seen even today funding has been suspended. 6.8 million of government funds not going against the FEI. They should be helping grassroots football. So we have a very thin level of talent, I suppose. Very few in the Premier League. But as a football fan, you know, I, I, I actually thought that Kenny relied too much on some of the old war horses like uh, Conor Horan or Shane Duffy against Holland. Um, 
you know, we saw Duffy, like I'm a big fan of his, but he, he was sitting very deep and there were two goals he, he kept the Dutch onside for. So Kenny, he, he was kind of, he wasn't fully in, you know, like in going with youth. There was younger players, more able players, get more game times at times, but he would rely on some of those older players in, in the big matches. Um, and, and yeah, he, he was too rigid to his structure then, you know. So, you know, oh. what was galling from a football fan's point of view was there was a lack of fight in those recent games, like the, the Dutch game in Amsterdam, we never even looked like scoring. The, the two Greek games, you know, even the Dutch game at home when we went 1-0 up, you know, we, when, as soon as they came back into it and they took the lead, it never really looked like we could And yet from it. the players, we heard after the match, like praise again for the manager, you know, this, which we have consistently heard. And we've mm. also heard, you know, the media being critiqued for like backing Stephen Kenny all the way. But yeah. the players also backed him all, all the way um, uh, with that, Daniel. Actually, a word of note on the older players, uh, James McLean, He's stepping away from international football, his final match tonight as well. Yeah, he's one of the players that sung Kenny's praises. I would say, and Gary Breen wrote about this in the Irish Independent during the week, that Kenny's brought a lot of coaching structures and preparation. Now, it hasn't always gone to plan in terms of what we've seen on the pitch, but I do think he's brought an air of professionalism to the job that if they keep some of those structures in place for the next manager, we will see success. A word on James McLean, like he was... Absolutely incredible. I think his peak was scoring that Wales goal uh, to get us into the World Cup playoff mm. against Denmark. I think Irish football over since maybe 2002 peaked at that moment, unfortunately. And it's been downhill since the 5-1 against Denmark. But uh, again, he's another player, Mark touched on it there, that maybe Kenny probably relied too much at the start to bring in. And even Jeff Hendrick at times mm. was took a long time before he was out of the team. So look, I, I think the legacy ultimately will be bringing those young players. But if Kenny maybe stuck, almost stuck with that, all-in approach, maybe there might have been a bit more patience from fans, but it's frustrating. But just on the FAI themselves, um, like we've seen with the John Delaney era, we've come in from a low base, but I haven't been too impressed recently with the FAI. Um, the commercial director came out last month saying there wasn't really an issue that the men's team don't have a sponsor, but I think it's three years now, it's over three years, and men's team still don't have a sponsor. The women's team started a deal with Sky two years ago, and I think that was a perfect opportunity to bring the men's and women's team together under the same umbrella. That hasn't happened, so... There's been a lot of stuff outside of Kenny that this won't end. Yeah. In fact, I think when Kenny's reign does end, the focus will come even more on the FAI with the government funding in particular. Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit about that, the, the governance issues that really maybe haven't gone away, Mark, uh, uh, on that. But uh, just to ask you, Keith, like when we talk about the future and all these young players come, coming through, do, do you fear for the future of Irish football or do you think that there's promise there with the right manager coming in now and taking this batch of players and doing what he can with them. Yeah, look, from the outside looking in, there's definitely potential there. You look at the likes of Evan Ferris and Andrew Moore and coming on today. Sykes, Omabemadele is still only 21. His career has stalled a little bit, gone to Nottingham Forest. But we do have potential there, but potential doesn't pay the bills. You know, again, I go back to it. You can be a very good under 21 player. You can be messing about in the championship at a very high level. But international football is all about tactics. It's about when to go. It's about know-how. You need experience on the pitch. You need caps on the pitch. You can't, you can't just go out there and be a novice. I mean, when, when I broke into the Irish team, I had all sorts of people around me. I had Damien Duff 100 caps ahead of me. So I'm learning off people like that. Whereas, <clears> And you need me. those mentors on the pitch, is what you're saying. If you don't have them, then you're, you know, you, you, you can be a little bit lost yeah, as well, a young player. Who's yeah, well, I played under Trapatoni and, you know, some of the lads that were in that team, the likes of Richard Dorn, Robbie Keane, 
uh, Glenn Whelan, and Shea Gibbon, if something was going wrong on the pitch, we wouldn't be looking to the sideline to say, like, Gaffer, can you tell us how we saw it? Said, we had problem solvers. We had lads who had been there, done it, been through it, and I learned from them. So, you know, it was a great place to learn. I knew I wasn't going to break into the team straight away because of the strength. So I was putting building blocks in place to make myself an international footballer. And it's just a, it's a sign of where the team is at. We don't quite have... You know, anybody, somebody shows a, a decent level in, in, in League One or the Championship, mm. a flash in the pan, they're getting into the Irish team straight away. And it's just a sign of where the international team is at right now. And just briefly, I suppose if the results were better, maybe some people might have glossed over those governance uh, issues that have really come to the fore, um, Mark. But the FAI not being compliant with rules governing the pay of their chief executive, Jonathan Hill, how damaging is this for the organisation now? It's hugely damaging, I think. Um, you know, after the Delaney era, you know, where we saw extravagant personal spending of the FBI's money with Delaney and it's still under guard investigation with the Corporate Enforcement Authority three, four years on. After all that, all 60 odd million pumped into the FBI by the government in the last uh, four years. And then for that government funding to be paused, suspended because of an issue with CEO pay and him having to repay 20,000 euro because he took um, pay in lieu of holidays not taken, even though that's expressly forbidden in the staff handbook. Mm. Staff are furious. Football uh, people are furious about this. There's an AGM coming up in the next few weeks. Thomas Byrne announced the 6.8 million suspended today, the total amount, putting a figure on it. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, Kenny's out the door. The focus now is going to turn very mm. much on to Jonathan Hill, the CEO. All right. The focus will also turn to who the possible successor will be. Briefly, uh, Daniel, on this, Lee Carsley to Roy Keane. A lot of names mentioned there. Who would be your favourite? Uh, Lee Carsley by far, just because I think he can balance the, what Stephen Kenny was trying to do with that bit of defensive football out. He touched on in terms of let's try and be tough to beat against. So very similar to Mikel Arteta getting the Arsenal job in the sense he's done an apprenticeship at international level, essentially under Gareth Southgate. I know they're not in the same team, but yeah, I would say one bright note, the under-21s very nearly beat Italy tonight. Uh, fantastic performance and their best player was playing for the senior team. So it just shows you there are young players coming through, but <laughs> he said it's a long way from the 21s to senior international. But it was a bright spark right. and a great occasion at Turners Cross. Oh, tonight, that's so. good. Silver linings. Uh, Keith, uh, briefly on that, would you agree Lee Carsley is, is, the, is the man to take over here? Yeah, well, I wouldn't exactly be looking just for the name and who it is. I think we need a pragmatic manager. We need somebody who's going to have a hybrid approach, not just say we're going to play football and, you know, plan B is football, plan C is football. We need to cut our cloth accordingly. When we play the minnows, go and have a right game off them. If not, go and just chop shop. OK, there we'll have to leave for now. My thanks to Daniel, to Keith and to Mark from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.